And hello, gang. Robert Polly here with another edition of the 7th Avenue Project. Now, you are no doubt aware that there is a big boom going on in neuroscience these days. In fact, we've had our share of neuroscientists on this show. And I mean neuroscience not just as a way of explaining, say, the nitty-gritty of brain cells and neurotransmitters and other nuts-and-bolts stuff, but as a way of actually explaining all of human thought and behavior, who we are, what we do, why we do it, and how we could do it better. Here, uh, let me read some recent headlines from the news. The neuroscience of trusting yourself. The neuroscience of challenging coaching. Japanese neuroscientists decode human dreams. Tibetan monk is world's happiest man, say neuroscientists. Professor finds neuroscience provides insights into brains of complex and adaptive leaders. Neuroscience helps enhance individual productivity. Obama hopes mapping project reveals brains' mysteries. So even the president is getting in on the act. And that, my friends, is just a small sampling. In fact, the way things are going, you could easily get the impression that soon enough, everything from psychology and economics to social policy and business strategy will be nothing more than a form of applied neuroscience. But not everybody out there is so convinced. For example, my guest on the show today, Robert Burton. My image in my mind is of the first guy who landed on the moon, who planted the flag. Somehow, the neuroscientists have planted the flag on the mine. And really, but we haven't gotten to the mind yet. We don't even know where, where in the sky it's located. Bob himself is a neurologist, a guy who spent his career confronting the complexity of the brain. And he thinks that a lot of his colleagues are way out of their depth when they venture beyond traditional biology and medicine into loftier questions of human nature. At this point, he thinks we're all out of our depth on those questions. Now, Bob Burton is a doubter by temperament, self-professed, and his doubts grew a lot when he started seriously considering how it is that we even come to know the mental phenomena that some scientists are now attempting to explicate. Bob's 2008 book on being certain, believing you are right even when you're not, painted the picture of our brain as unreliable narrator of its own workings. I mean, uh, we each have this firm sense of what's going on in our heads, right? The operations of our own thought. And that is surely something we can depend on. But what if it isn't? What if our sense of our own inner life is a partial picture or even a charade put on by an untrustworthy brain? Well, that would be a problem not just for us ordinary schmoes who like to think we really know ourselves, but also for neuroscientists hoping to investigate the mind. Seeing as the mind that they hope to investigate might be the product of misinformation, maybe they're tilting at windmills. Well, that is one of the problems that Bob Burton outlines in his latest book, A Skeptic's Guide to the Mind, What Neuroscience Can and Cannot Tell Us About Ourselves. Bob joined me recently by phone to talk about it. And by the way, this is the second interview I've done with Bob. We talked back in 2008 about his earlier book. You can listen to that conversation on iTunes or our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. But it is in no way a prerequisite for this new interview, which stands on its own. So, Bob, thanks for doing this. I'm really looking forward to talking about your new book. And I'd like to start, if it's okay with you, with a quote from your book. Sure. Neuroscience is now seen as the preeminent model of the mind and the creator and guardian of our cultural mythology. It has garnered the ultimate status of becoming a prefix. A new language is emerging. 
neuroeconomics, neuroesthetics, neurotheology, neuroinnovation, neurologistics, neuromarketing, neuronetworking. And I would add uh, neuroskeptics, uh, a small but growing group of people of whom you're a member. I'll go along with that. If you force me into a category, I'll accept that one. <laughs> when did you first start having doubts? Um, you were a neurologist. I mean, you're retired now. I guess you're still a neurologist in some sense. But you ran the, the neurology department at uh, UC San Francisco Mount Zion Hospital. Right. Very prestigious hospital. And right. you were the head of the department. So you must have believed in neuroscience to some extent. No, I was a practicing neurologist. <laughs> well, well, you believed that you could, in some cases, diagnose and in some cases address various brain pathologies, right? Right. Actually, let me, let me clarify. When I use in my book the word neuroscience, my beef is not with neuroscience. It's with trying to bridge the gap between what the brain does and what we experience as a, I'm going to put quotations around it, mind, you know, quotation mark, mind, unquotation mark, because the mind is what the book's about. I have no qualms or beef with uh, neuroscience in the brain. I mean, there's no other way to study the brain. The real question is, how do we extrapolate from what the brain does to what we experience or think about as a mind? So, I mean, my career as a neurologist really was dealing with the brain and its phenomena, which is actually what led me to think about the difference between the brain and the mind. In other words, you'd see people with diseases with rather peculiar symptoms, which is sort of in the category of Oliver Sacks. I mean, most folks really love Oliver Sacks because he's a phenomenologist. And when you really are, see Sacks at work at his best, but you're really at the bedside of patients experiencing phenomena. And so I think my experience of doubt was extrapolating from the science to the phenomena. Well, when Oliver Sacks writes about a man who mistook his wife for a hat, or a guy with uh, what is called Korsakoff's syndrome, where extreme alcoholism had damaged his uh, short-term memory to the point where every moment was experienced as a brand-new moment, no memory of what had happened the moment before. Right. Um, he's still relating it to actual uh, neurological, that is, organic damage or malfunction. So there's this, this connection between the mind, as Oliver Sacks describes, you know, these phenomena, as you say, and the brain. So what do we do with that connection? Well, actually, I think the question you're sort of implicit is, how do you think about the physiology of neurons and their connections versus the experience of a mind? And that's where the one-to-one -one, uh, correlation doesn't fit very well. Uh, for example, we really do understand that the, the mind somehow emanates from the brain. Without a brain, there is no mind. And we're not talking about the supernatural or, uh, you know, ectoplasm or something. <laughs> we're just talking about something, something emerges from the brain that we call a mind, but we experience it as uh, subjective sensations. And I guess my my concern with neuroscience is really the way that it's trying to make a one-to-one -one cor correlation without any clue whatsoever as to how that works and really sort of extrapolate, for example, saying that because you have a, uh, a gene for risk-taking behavior, let's say, this is you know, sort of hypothetical, that that explains why you gamble. 
No, it doesn't explain why you gamble. It tells you you have an increased likelihood that you might gamble, but it doesn't predict your behavior in any convincing way in the individual. Nor does it tell you, because you have that gene, what you experience when you see three cherries lined up on a slot machine. <laughs> you know, they have, the old, they have that old thing about your red is not my red. Right. Well, maybe three cherries on a slot machine is different to a guy who has the, the gene for increased risk-taking from somebody else, but we don't know what it is, and he can't tell you because he's only had that solitary experience. He doesn't know it's like not to have that gene. Right, right. Well, of course, there is this this chasm um, uh, between the objective language describing, let's say, the mechanics of brain function or neurological function and the subjective experience. And uh, it, it's certainly arguable whether that chasm can actually be crossed because those, those are such very different ways of regarding things. They may belong in different universes altogether. And yet there is this thing we can't ignore, which is that correlation is too weak a word. I mean, yes, there's a correlation between hitting yourself on the head and a loss of consciousness, but if you dig deeper, there's a correlation between damage to this part of the brain, um, you know, our way of thinking about certain things. There are the classic studies by one of your heroes, Wilder Penfield, right? Right, the neurosurgeon up at Montreal. Were these experiments done in the 40s? Um, He published his um, final opus in 63, and I think it was 25 years' worth of research preceding it. Right, so 40s, 50s, up through the 60s. And, you know, he had conscious patients who had had their brains opened up, and he would um, stick a little electrode in there and give a little electrical stimulation to a part of the brain, and they would have these subjective sensations. Right. They would, like, remember things, or they'd have a feeling of, oh, something familiar is out there, I'm not sure what it is. Things we think of as belonging to that category of our inner life, of the mind. And yet they were being caused, in a sense, by electricity, current in the, in the, in the um, you know, gray matter, right? Right. Well, I think, actually, if you take a look at his studies, what he was able to do quite convincingly, and actually it was his studies that I read when I first was in medical school that prompted me to go to neurology. Um, his studies are able to elicit fragments of memory. In other words, in his original studies... I remember one woman will remember a fragment of a song from her high school or or the street on which she lived, but they don't elicit complete stories. They don't elicit uh, complex thoughts. You can easily stimulate primary experience such as deja vu. I mean, that's you know you can do that almost uniformly in patients. So that sensation of familiarity or deja vu is easy to to stimulate. On the other hand, he never was able to re reproduce or do in a convincing manner complex things like embarrassment, gratitude, pride, Uh or complex mental states. So when you think about those, they obviously are a mixture of underlying more basic states. In other words, embarrassment is probably a mixture of many more primitive emotions that are blended in a sort of idiosyncratic way that's to every individual. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I have no question that if that you can stimulate the, the lower level phenomena, and in fact that's what prompted me to kind of go into the field I did, but that you can stimulate complex sensations which collectively we call the mind. Ah. Well, I mean, when we take a, a drug, let's say a neuroactive drug, 
clearly there's some chemical mechanism there. It's a chemical we're ingesting, after all, that is messing with our neurological function to the extent that we might experience different kinds of consciousness. So we can't escape this connection between the physical realm and the mental realm. It's there. Oh, I don't think there's any question. I just think the question is whether the brain studied at the level of neuroanatomy and neurochemistry is adequate to explain the experience. And for example, if you take a single termite and you look at a termite, how it, with every single function it has, you'll not find it to have termite mound building ability. You need to have it in conjunction with a bunch of other termites. Right. There's no question that the capability of the termite to build a mound Mine. I was going to say, it is, I, I actually short-circuited myself. That's kind of funny. I like it. <laughs> to, to build a mind, actually, is not a bad idea. But if you take, <laughs> I was going to say, a termite to build a mound is equivalent to a neuron building a mind. So that one termite can't build a mound, nor does it have adequate neural power you know, to have a representation of what it takes architecturally and structurally, engineering-wise. I mean, this is true for virtually all group behavior, swarming behavior, etc. It's the same thing. Individual neurons cannot create a sense of gratitude by themselves, but they do collectively. So studying neuroscience at the level of neuroanatomy and neurophysiology like this new Obama project will give you increased understanding of the basic wiring, etc., but doesn't explain how that morphs into more complex phenomena. So, for example, and if you can think of... If you think of gratitude, perhaps, I never thought of this just a second, but gratitude is the kind of emotion we've all experienced, but it's actually a combination of a thought, I'm grateful for something, um, as well as a feeling. It, it, it's, it's much more complicated than, than going to be contained within a single uh, circuitry. Even. So I think if you see the, the mind as being progressive levels of increasing complexity in a sort of hierarchical way, you, you understand that the limits of neuroscience are going to be at the level of studying from a scientific methodology, whether it's fMRI or uh, electrical activities such as with the Obama initiative or neurochemically such as in thinking about uh, SSRIs, etc. Those are all working at a lower level. The real question is, is it possible to use lower-level techniques to ever get to the higher-level understanding. And that's where my uh, skepticism is. I should explain a couple references there. Um, the Obama Initiative that you've mentioned a couple times is this new initiative to do a very detailed map of the brain's activity, sort of uh, on the model of the Human uh, Genome Project, right? It, right, and sort of a combination the Human Connectome Project, which has started up as sort of a kissing cousin to it. I mean, it's the idea that if you understand how the sort of patterns of electricity in the brain, you'll have a better understanding of how the brain works, which I have no question about what, you know, but that's different thing. You'll be able to understand what makes human beings tick. Right. And then you uh, mentioned um, fMRIs, that's functional magnetic resonance imaging. That's the very, very popular brain imaging technique these days where you look at what areas of the brain are active while people are having certain thoughts or, or doing certain things, and you get a nice picture of areas of the brain either lit up or dark, depending on uh, what, what parts are working. 
or most active. And then you mentioned SSRIs, which are serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitors, the antidepressants that include Prozac. Yeah, I did that all in one sentence. I apologize <laughs> for the jargon-laden <laughs> speech. That's why I'm here. <laughs> That's my job. <laughs> I hope your audience accepts my apologies for the so, language. So it sounds like your basic argument is with, you know, what people have known for a very long time as um, reductionism, the idea that you can s explain everything just by explaining the most elementary components. But you're not saying that if you work your way up from that reductionistic view to a larger systems view of the brain, let's say, okay, uh, brain activity on a much larger level, you know, the mass activity of millions, billions, even trillions of neural connections, right, that maybe you could get to some explanations of things like embarrassment or imagination or love? That's the big question mark, obviously. Uh-huh. And, you know, for me to say that I had an unequivocal answer would be to have an answer. <laughs> In other words, you, if, you, if, you, if you know that it's not reachable, then it means you, you, you're clairvoyant, uh, that you somehow can anticipate the future. Uh, and on the other hand, if you say it is reachable, it means that you're clairvoyant. So both positions are, are unsound given the fact we can't predict the future. On the other hand, if you ask my gut feeling, I think that the complexity is so great that it seems hard to imagine in, in the foreseeable future. And then there's the additional problem of, who's, of, of the experience itself, how you would quantify this subjective experience. Like I mentioned, but uh, sort of... Uh, facetiously, but not so facetiously, about the three cherries in the slot machine. I don't know how, other than talking to a person, you'd ever be able to quantify that. And to quantify a story is a misunderstanding, or it's a category error, really. You can't quantify, quantify a story. If I mean, I notice now that, for example, Google's got a new method where they can actually grade essays by seeing the number of times that certain keywords appear. Well, certainly, in a, in a kind of simple-minded way, you can uh, say, okay, he says he sees three cherries and he feels happy, elated, you know, exuberant, whatever he says. But we don't know what those words mean. One person's exuberance is not another person's happiness, etc. And so that anytime you have subjective descriptions, you already have the problems of language. And how you objectify languages is just, I don't think that ever can be solved. I mean, even if two people promise that they're going to talk about the same thing, it doesn't feel the same to them. So as long as you have language, you have a gap that's really quite different than, than a scientific gap. It's actually a gap of description of what you're, of the people experiencing subjectively in their minds, so to speak. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there are many who would say that the probably the biggest category error that you could possibly commit is that between objective description and subjective experience, that the difference between red as a wavelength of light or as a pattern of stimulation in the visual cortex and red as we see it, feel it, experience it, is again an abyss that cannot be crossed, that though there may be correlations, uh, it doesn't get any closer than that. So, yeah, I, I, I take your meaning on that level. I, I do want to delve more deeply into your... Um, the origins of your critique. You know, I asked earlier, when did you start to sort of bristle, you know, at what you see as the, the overselling, the overextension of neuroscience into 
uh, psychology, philosophy of mind, and these other fields. You know, let me let me go back for a second. This my first book, which was about uh, certainty, uh, rose out of my sort of exasperation with people who just felt that they knew the exact right answer. Uh, and it took me a long time to think through what it was that caused that. And, and I came back with the idea that certainty was actually an involuntary mental sensation, which I think we discussed in our last interview. Uh, now, let me now flash back for how that came about. I remember in the very beginning of my neurology career, I was, um, I guess, early 30s, and I was working, uh, doing a research project with the vascular surgery department. And a question arose as to whether or not a particular kind of surgery could help prevent, you know, uh, stroke. The question really was, if you prophylactically took patients who were asymptomatic but had some degree of narrowing of their carotid arteries, those are the arteries to the brain, and then you cleaned them out, would you prevent stroke in these people? So we wrote up a protocol for the Human Ethics Committee, submitted it, and we were rejected. The reason we were rejected was the vascular surgery people said they thought that the uh, proposal was unethical because they were sure it worked. And the neurology division said they thought it was unethical because they thought that treatment had no value. So my argument was, well, that's why you do a control study when you can't make a decision as to whether something's of value because you have evidence on both sides. So we presented saying, how could you both be certain of your right and be absolutely contrary to each other? It took 10 years to get the study done. Meanwhile, the question I had was, what made these people think that they were right? What made them feel so insistent to the exclusion of alternative possibilities? And then it made me start to think about what it means to be right. And I had this sort of idea that maybe there are mental sensations that we have that we can't control, such as feeling of certainty. And that led me to think, how do you know when people are right in general? What's the nature of expertise? And sort of, I think that stems from a sort of skeptical overview of anybody who has an absolutist position. So I think, biologically, I'm predisposed to be a skeptic. <laughs> Plus, I'm an existentialist, which kind of like... There's, you know anything will you know that anything that's absolutely cut and dry goes against the very tenets of existentialism that you kind of live in the hinterlands between hope, absurdity, and ultimate reality of death. That was sort of a Camus line. <laughs> you know, and if that's your sort of if that's your sort of innate bias, and then you start to see people acting in ways that are personally offensive, namely. Uh, absolutism, it leads you to thinking about this in a peculiar way. And I, I hate to admit it, but I think that part of the, these two books that I've written stem from a, not a desire to get even, but a desire to, to point out the, the neuroscience emperor is wearing tattered clothes. How did um, a guy like you then function in a field where you had to make decisions um, based on what you would consider to be incomplete evidence. I mean, you had to make decisions about treatment, right? Right. Well, keep in mind that, 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 that I guess in a way, if you think about it, this is a, the difference between 
operating with probabilities versus operating with certainties. If you keep up on the literature and you're reasonably open-minded, you can operate well with probabilities without getting into the uh, cul-de-sac of certainty. Right. Uh, so I, I don't think that being a I think being a skeptic doesn't negate good decision making. Um, you know, I, I just don't. I think that there. I think it's the, it's the leap from. I think this is most likely to that certain that that I tried to avoid. Right. Um, going back to your earlier book that you talked about, and y- that was the subject of an interview we did back in two thousand eight uh, on being certain, believing you're right, uh, even when you're not. Correct. Um, it went further than simply expressing your dislike of overconfident, you know, uh, self-certain people. I mean, it it actually began to look at this sense of certainty as a neurological phenomenon. And it was quite fascinating because, I mean, you pointed out that when we have a perception, uh, we not only have the perception, but we it often comes with a little extra information that says, uh, I know this, I don't know this. Uh, or this may be true or it may not be true. But sometimes that extra information, that sensation, is really strong. I mean, I absolutely know this. This is not an intellectual judgment. It's a feeling of absolute conviction. You know, we couldn't function without it. I mean, I I feel certain that the ground beneath my feet is solid, and I if I step on it, I won't fall through the earth. <laughs> <laughs> I feel certain that I'm talking to a guy named Bob Burton right now. I'm really not in doubt of that. That's right. Um, and, and we have a lot of certainty about such things. Now, that all sounds perfectly good, except that there are cases where it goes disastrously wrong. And on a neurological level, this is the fascinating part, you know, you can actually um, point to some brain disorders that result in a disconnection between this sense of certainty and any you know, valid notion of objective truth. You had a patient, for instance, that you described. You politely call him Mr. C, right? Correct. <laughs> you told me the story of Mr. C in that previous interview, but I like it so much I'd love you to tell me again. Mr. C is the art dealer? Yes. Yeah, and actually, let me go back for a second to to, to give a preliminary overview of this. In other words, in, in, in partly because when I wrote the book, I hadn't really seen this in a larger picture, and I think maybe is what I've tried to express in the first part of the, the new book, is if you just simply think of the brain as all one item, you end up with a kind of a potpourri uh, of feelings and thoughts all mixed together. But it, it's easier for me to think of it as two systems. One is that there is a computational aspect of the brain. Let's say, let's just take something similar, like it recognizes a face. Mm-hmm. So it it takes all the various features, the angles, the the whether or not you have a mustache or beard or whatever the distance between the eyes. It takes all the various features that they use in standard pattern recognition, uh, even at an airport and looking at faces. You know, so imagine a pattern recognition computational device, but it doesn't have any way of notifying you of the likelihood of it being correct. So in addition to the computational device, there's a second component, namely a feeling that it generates, and the strength of this feeling will be the likelihood that it's correct. So if you're recognizing a face, it'll be the recognition of the face, so you'll see the image come to, like you're in a crowd, your brain will pick out a face that he thinks it knows, and along with that will be a separate feeling, the feeling of recognition. Now that feeling of recognition is an involuntary sensation that the brain generates, 
maybe let's say it's an eighty percent chance that you think that the the face is Joe Blow. Okay, you have a certain sense of feeling. If it, the brain is absolutely certain uh, at a uh, unconscious level that the two match perfectly, then uh, it'll give you a ab- feeling of absolute certainty. But of course, we all know that. Uh, recognition of people is never absolutely certain. And many times we think someone's sh- sure, and you go up to them, and it turns out it's not them. So the feeling can be absolute, but it can be incorrect. So what we're left with is two components. We're left with the computational aspect of thought, which occurs almost, if almost exclusively, but not entirely exclusively, at the uh, subliminal level. And then you have the feelings that will make you aware of it and aware of it along with the qualifying sensation, how likely it is to be right. Okay, now we can go back to Mr. C. Mr. C was a man who had a very small stroke that he recovered within a few hours. And he was an art dealer, and he had in his home a huge uh, refractory desk. It was a French farm table that was like 12 feet long. And the reason I know this because he phoned me. He went home from the hospital in the morning. He phoned me at lunchtime and said, Something's wrong with my desk. He says, it's been replaced by a, a, an imitation. And he says, you've got to come over. And I tried to explain it. And, you know, I didn't make house calls to examine furniture, but he, uh, <laughs> he insisted. So I went over there, and, and I looked at his uh, furniture, and it was obvious that nobody could have taken this desk out because it would have to have been dismantled and take out the French doors. And he said, I know that this isn't my desk. And he said, he said, because when I run my hand along this desk, it no longer feels familiar. I no longer can, I recognize it's the right dimensions, shape, size, etc., but it doesn't feel like my desk, therefore it's been replaced. And what I realized is he had lost this sense of familiarity as part of a stroke as an isolated phenomena. So that if you think back about what I just told you about the calculation, the two parts, this computation of recognizing the desk strictly from pattern recognition was entirely intact, but it had been stripped of the uh, associated feeling tone of familiarity. So he looked at it, but it no longer was his. And these so-called misidentification syndromes are very common in neurology when there's a separation between the two uh, components. And it wasn't something that had really been described quite that way in the past. I thought it was worth thinking about how that came about, and it was from patients such as this, that I realized there really were two systems, the computational system and this so-called involuntary mental sensory system, which is sort of a term I coined, but I don't really know if it's the best term. I just don't know how to come up with a better one. Uh, it's, it's really a profound uh, realization. And by the way, was he suffering from what's known as Capgrass's uh, syndrome? You know, Yes, in in a, in, a, in a sense, that's correct. And in fact, that word has been used by a lot of the people to describe these so-called uh, misidentification syndromes. I suppose that's correct. Yes. So these are cases where people suddenly think someone or something uh, that they know has been replaced by a counterfeit, a cheap imitation, a cheap imitation. So in a sense, they're recognizing it. They know that it's it's you know it's a familiar object. But it's not the one. It's not the one that it used to be. A very weird idea. Like if uh, I was talking to my dad and said, God, this guy is exactly like my dad, but he's not my dad. And and it's profound because, as you say, it, it points to sort of two processes going on. One is the pattern recognition that allows me to say, this guy's just like my dad. But then there's this other thing, this more ethereal sense of it is or it isn't. And I almost want to call it metadata, you know. 
um, like the data that a computer might attach to an image that, uh, you know, you get a JPEG and it's the image, but then there's this metadata that says wh where it was taken, when it was taken, what its resolution is. Um, it's data about data. So, like I say, very important. And the fact that you not only realize that there were two kinds of operations going on that can become disconnected, that can become decoupled, and so everything <laughs> goes badly awry. You have delusional people who are certain of things that are not true, or you can have people who are no longer certain of things that, in fact, in some ways they know are true, you know, subconsciously. Um, but I want to add that what you realized, in addition to the fact that there was this phenomenon, was that it had a neurological basis. You could look at people after strokes or other kinds of brain injury or trauma and see how this mechanism started malfunctioning. Correct. It is a biological phenomenon, you know, somehow. Of course, we're back to the old problem of uh, describing the mind in material terms, and we've probably maybe sloppily crossed that gap in this part of our conversation. Well, you know, I was just thinking when, when you asked me about how I got started, it, one thinks about ideas in the abstract. You think like the idea was always the same, but that's not the true ideas evolved. And it's one of the things that we've never discussed is the changing view of consciousness and thought in general that's occurred over the course of my career. In other words, I think that when I was young, we were much more imbued with the idea that conscious thought was a significant percentage of what we did. And with each passing decade, and certainly in the last 10 to 20 years, there are more and more uh, studies, books, and you know, people's talking about how the vast majority of thought is unconscious. So I think that older theories about this problem stemmed from an idea that a lot of our thought is conscious. Now, if we recognize that it is unconscious, then you start to reevaluate some of the uh, so-called thoughts that you're having and ask how they come about. Now, the reason I mention this is that. As you know, we have a very small amount of um, memory. We can remember, you know, at, at, at most seven to nine numbers, ten numbers. We tend to chunk things together into a area code, prefix, suffix, etc. You do a handful of chunks at most. The rest of what we do actually occurs with a massive subliminal or unconscious uh, brain mechanism. Now, if you think about it, if most of what we're doing occurs unconsciously. We have to have a notification of how that occurs. Now, originally when I wrote the book on being certain, I, I kind of focused on certainty and that feeling of certainty. But then I realized there are a whole bunch of other sensations that collectively tell us what's going on consciously. A, a good example is if you think that you're think, trying to think of a, my name, but you can't remember it. Uh, you try, and you feel a sense of effort. I mean, you think of yourself sort of mentally straining to try and think of it. That feeling of a sense of effort is actually an involuntary sensation, and I'll tell you, and even the idea that you're thinking. <laughs> for, so if you think about it this way, imagine you, you, you can't think of my name. So you say, oh, I'll go to bed, I'll remember it in the morning. Now, when you wake up in the morning, you're walking around brushing your teeth, and all of a sudden my name comes into mind. Well, obviously, your brain was working on it. He was going through its sort of subliminal Rolodex that came up with my name. So your mind was thinking. In the first case, when you were trying to think but couldn't come up with it, you had a feeling 
of effort, and you had a feeling of thinking right now. In the second case, you had no feeling of effort, no feeling of thinking, but certainly it's the same mechanism in the brain. The difference is the brain was operating in so-called silence in, in the second scenario, and in the first, you had the, uh, the illusion that it was occurring strictly consciously, even though we know that the vast majority of this isn't occurring consciously. Well, if you, once you start to think about it, then the major sort of experiences you have in the mind, the sense of self, the sense of agency, the sense of ownership of an idea, you realize those are all sensory phenomena. And that's why the first half of my book sort of addresses that. And that is the mind that we normally experience. And so I think from coming from the idea that consciousness was primarily, you know, this is the age of enlightenment, so we're rational. Right. Uh, it's uh, Freud and, and Virginia Woolf and so on. Maybe it's been only 100 years that we started to explore the unconscious, and as maligned as Freud is and all the things he did wrong, one of the things he did emphasize was the subliminal nature of much of our uh, psychic activity. And now I think when you see Daniel Kahneman and you read, you know, or Daniel Ariely and the various people that have uh, books on uh, irrationality, I mean, everybody knows the vast majority of, of our thought is unconscious. And then you really have to recognize that those, that those experiences we have in our mind cannot be from conscious, consciously generated. They are, the, they are an extension of the feelings of familiarity I mentioned with patient C, deja vu, feelings of certainty, and so on. They're, they're, there's a composite. There are a whole bunch of these which collectively are, are the experience of a mind. So you're saying that the vast majority of our neurological processing um, that occurs in the brain is unconscious. Some of it is completely unavailable to us. We couldn't for the life of us ever look into ourselves, introspect, and see our visual system working, oh, or see our limbic system, you know, managing our, our heartbeats and our, you know, hormone levels and things like that. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes we can get a little glimpse if we want to inspect a thought process. We can look a little more closely, right? Um, or we can do what Freud did and examine ourselves to the point where we can say, wow, I was acting unconsciously there according to some bias or some childhood <laughs> childhood trauma or something like that um but as you say that you know a lot of the more recent research over the last you know couple of decades has showed just how much of our thought is happening unconsciously and even stuff that we used to think of as conscious like decision making there are experiments that can show uh, a person who's told to carry out an action and then report afterwards exactly at what moment they decided to do that action, it turns out that you can see uh, that they have unconsciously initiated the action, that their motor system is already initiating it, before they remember actually having made the decision. So in this case, it would seem that their conscious mind is not even aware of when the unconscious had made the decision, and yet the consciousness is taking credit for it. And, and if you think about it, we always knew that. This is what's so stunning about uh, the, the sort of revelations coming out of neuroscientists. They are really just shining a light on the obvious. If you think about it this way, uh, if you learn to play the piano and you, you, you memorize a piece so that you can play it, when, when you sit down to play, your brain sets into motion a series of directions to uh, your fingers 
they have to occur before you're conscious of it, or you'd never be able to play. <laughs> It'd be just too slow. Yes. You, you'd be playing, yeah, you couldn't get beyond chopsticks. Right. Maybe not even chopsticks. Well, so we always knew that you had to have so-called representational maps in place for every action that we take. And when I mean actions, actions also includes thought processes. They have to be in place in order for you to carry them out. In other words, for you to even think that B follows from A, you have to have learned the process of thinking uh, so-called rationally, logically, learning syllogisms, etc. All of those are sort of there. So naturally, when you go to do something, those have to be activated first. Then once you, once they're sufficiently activated, then your um, brain will tell the, the conscious you, this is what we're doing, but it doesn't make sense for you to experience this. As this is what we're doing unconsciously, it makes much more sense for it to delude you into thinking you made the decision. Because it wouldn't feel right to say, uh, unconsciously, this is what we've, we've all decided, and now we're going to make you do it. That'd be a rather an awkward sort of situation. So better to say, I just decided that. And so I refer to these as cognitive feelings. They're feelings as though you've made a decision, you've determined that you're right in the sense of certainty. You've determined you have free will and agency in the sense of agency. Those are sensations that the unconscious has, has delivered to you. One of my favorite examples of the conscious part of us sort of making up stories post hoc are the studies of uh, split brain patients uh, by people like, is it Michael Gazaniga? Right. Uh, is that how you pronounce it? Gazaniga. Gazaniga. Oh, thanks. Uh, very famous studies of people who had the left and right hemispheres of their brain separated because it was a last-ditch effort to prevent, uh, you know, massive epileptic seizures. Right. And what you end up with are people um, who have a, kind of like two brains. And you can show one side of the brain or the other side certain things and have them perform certain functions, and the other side really doesn't know what's going on. So, you know, if you have a little experiment in which you have a person look through, let's say, their left eye and perform a function um, with their left hand, that's the right brain controlling that. Uh, if you don't let the right eye see, then the left brain doesn't know that it's happened. And they did experiments where they had a person, for instance, uh, they showed the person's right brain uh, an image of a face and then an image of a smile and then had them draw a picture of a face and they drew a smiling face. Right. Right? Then they showed the left brain what the person had done and asked the person why. And the left brain being responsible for, more responsible for, for language and logic, made up a story. But it didn't know that it, the uh, right brain had done this thing because it had been shown this picture. And so it made up a different story. Um, some patients would say, well, I, I drew it smiling because I think that's a more positive image. So this is a case of our brain being exposed as a flagrant bullshitter. Well, that's what, basically what it is. is <laughs> the brain is going to make a story that makes sense to it, and it's going to tell it to you whether you like it or not. And so confabulation, which is, is seen with, with memory disorders, for example, is the brain's way of trying to soothe over a, a gap in its own knowledge. So the same way that it tries to fill in ambiguous stories with, a, with an answer, it's going, it, it, that's what it does. If pattern recognition requires completing the loop, so to speak, and then it will tell you the story, as I say, with dreaming. Dreaming is a, is a narration in which none of the stuff really fits together in, some, in the in real way, but it's the best we can do when we're asleep. 
Well, another thing that um, our brains or we tell ourselves is that we're thinking things through consciously when, in fact, if you look closely, you can see that what is in front of your consciousness, what you're really aware of, is but a tiny fragment of the thought process you think you are engaged in. Um, You have a wonderful analogy that, you know, say when we, we work out a problem, we really can't consider more than a few words or a few numbers, a few digits at a time, and yet we can work out fairly complex problems, you know, and in the end we can produce a result that's pretty good. And you say it's sort of like the search we enter into the Google um, search window. Uh, And then, you know, this vast apparatus behind the scenes, in the case of Google, it's a bunch of servers and algorithms. In the case of our brain, it's, you know, the majority of our (laughs) neurological circuitry goes to work on the problem and then spits out a result. And consciously we say, oh, yeah, we worked that out. I did that. Um, the consciousness takes credit for it. But again, if you examine how you really work through problems, you're not really doing much of it consciously at all. Right. You know, I, I, just as another aside, um, when you asked about origins of, of how I came up with this idea, I just remembered for the first time in 30 years, I actually had a conversation with uh, Huston Smith, who was a... Oh, Houston Smith, yeah. And he drew a, an analogy that I just remembered, and I think it's terribly important, I wouldn't interrupt your uh, interview to mention it, but he, he used the idea that during World War II in England, when you looked out at the sky at night with a, one of those large searchlights, you could see only a very small percentage of the sky. But based upon what you saw, you made a decision as to whether uh, there were incoming V2s or whatever. By seeing a very small segment of the sky, you told yourself a story about the entire sky, based upon this very... And I realized that when you were talking about conscious and unconscious, so if you were to look at the sky, the sky would be the unconscious, and the very small segment that you can look at might be what consciousness actually, what what is delivered into consciousness. And based upon that, you try to extrapolate to the whole by telling yourself stories. And the stories themselves that you tell yourself, how good or bad they're going to feel to you, how correct they're going to be, are going to be based upon these involuntary sensations that your brain is sending up. So your brain is not only sending up uh, a little fragment of what it's doing, it's also sending you up a qualifier, which itself is telling you how likely the story is to be correct. (laughs) And I thought, wow, that is a... I mean, I never thought of it, but I think that image of lighting up a very small segment and extrapolating to the whole is maybe my beef with neuroscience. Yeah, so you know, it's funny. It's funny you mention Houston Smith, by the way, the, the great scholar of religion. Um, that's what he's best known for. Um, I was going to say that you know, in addition to the Google search window, it, it reminds me of shining a flashlight into the darkness and seeing a tiny, tiny portion of, let's say, a very big cave. <laughs> right. That cave being the immense and you know seemingly boundless machinery of the brain, and us just glimpsing a few stalagmites or stalactites here and there, you know, and saying, oh, I know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, but see, what's worse is not only is, is, is that we only see it, but then the, the same brain that's giving us this skewed view is telling us a story about this, which is combination of pattern recognition, and, and, uh, and then it's telling you the likelihood this is correct. And I think, as I mentioned in the book, for example, we don't even know that if thinking occurs in a 
sequ- in a normal sequence, for example, in the brain, is, it has massive parallel processing. So it may be that decisions are made as a sort of a group thing all in an instant. But we have a sensation of the temporal flow of ideas. A causes B causes C causes D. Um, it, that, even that may or may not be true. So when people say my line of reasoning is correct, there may be no underlying line of reasoning. Uh, yeah, and even if there is, they certainly aren't privy to it. That's right. Um, so we end up with this vision almost of, of human existence as a self, a consciousness, and I think self and consciousness are, uh, boy, if, if not identical in their meaning in a way, they're very, very closely related. Of, of the, the entity that you and I are referring to in this conversation as us in the first person, right? Right. This is the consciousness as this groping, largely benighted explorer, um, or I would almost say as this um, audience uh, member of a magic show who's being shown selectively certain things and sometimes certain things that are complete illusions and believes they've seen something when, in fact, <laughs> they may not have. Right. And, you know, it, 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 that sound, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, at first glance that sounds... Well, why would you develop that way? But the fact of the matter is a lot of these are necessary. For example, you need a sense of self in order to imagine a future, make plans, even to, to move around inside your mind. In other words, well, if I'm going to, if you're thinking about how you get to your office from home forever, whatever, you need a sense of self. You need a sense of certainty in order to make decisions so that you can stop endless yes, but, and so on. So all of these have a real evolutionary value the net result of which is, when you call them an illusion, it, it sort of sounds like a pejorative. But it's, the, it's the, the way we've evolved in order to best accommodate our environment. But it's left us with some gaping holes in our knowledge and, and ways of thinking about our knowledge that can't be overcome because of the very way we acquire the knowledge requires some of these illusions to initiate the ideas that, that we then use to study this. Mm. Well, um, you know... I, I would argue that you could probably evolutionarily design a perfectly functional organism that didn't have this, this problem or disconnect at all, and that organism would be completely unconscious. That is, it would be a perfectly well-designed mechanism, call it a robot if you like, that carries out tasks um, that maybe uh, you know has processing that weighs probabilities and acts on them, but never thinks about it. I mean, never thinks consciously about it, never worries about it, just does it. I mean, you you and I have talked about this before, but we both agreed that you could design an Android, in theory, that would do everything that we do identical to the way we do it, including reproduce and thrive and so on and so forth. So if if your only purpose is to create a self-reproducing uh, organism that can survive, you, why do you need consciousness? Uh, you know, that implies that evolution proceeded in an orderly manner. <laughs> First of all, evolution is, is is random. Okay, I'm not really. I, I I really don't want to propose that at all. What I want to propose is that you don't need consciousness. That's all I want to say. Well, actually, you know, let me let me offer a, a peculiar idea, which I really don't have no idea if it's true. But very recently, um, I don't know, I was interviewed by somebody who was talking about the legal system and the jury system, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but recently they're now artificial intelligence uh, programs that are very good at recognizing body language. And in fact, comparing psychiatrists 
to the program in terms of body language uh, as measures of depression that they actually do as well as not better. In other words, they take into account the, whether you're leaning forward, backward, your position of your arms, your, you know, the, whether you're looking, making eye contact, etc. And they add all these together, and they can make some assessment of the likelihood of a person having an emotional state. Of course, the computer has no idea what that emotional state is and feels nothing about it. So I, we had this sort of hypothetical discussion with a, uh, uh, this, this jurist, this jurisprudence-type guy, and he said, well, could you just make them instead of jurors, because jurors are filled with all kinds of uh, negative biases and so on. And I said, well, it depends. In other words, you, on, if you think about the American legal system, you've got... Uh, desire for compassion and empathy and someone's story will plays a role in how jurors decide. And on the other hand, you have the desire for retribution and an eye for an eye that uh, the jurors have. And so we have a whole constellation of emotions that computers do not have. Now, whether they're even necessary, which is what you get back to consciousness. In other words, if you really want to be fair and just, would you be better off with a jury in which was composed of people who had all these biases? Are not having them at all because keep in mind it is the in the human human uh, frailty and admirable qualities camp, namely uh, compassion uh, versus retribution, etc. That we are different than computers, whether they are necessary or not, is really a kind of an interesting thought because maybe that the, the, what consciousness has given us are a number of traits which on balance is what makes us proud to be human, but may be what's going to kill us and destroy us as a civilization. Hard to know, isn't it? Uh-huh. Well, I didn't mean to make this digression, but I mean, that's a yeah. huge separate subject. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I am left with the, the open question, and I've never heard a satisfactory answer. Why do you need consciousness? Because everything that's attributed to consciousness, let's say, uh, oh, well, it's the executive function. It mediates between all kinds of information and um, uh, material, you know, raw material, and makes a decision based on it. Well, you know, that that's easy to execute unconsciously. I mean, in fact, our unconscious may well be mediating between different kinds of evidence. It probably, it almost certainly is, you know. Um, and you can certainly design AI programs that will weigh, you know, the likelihood of one thing versus another and make a decision. None of it has to be conscious. In fact, I would propose that as soon as you can describe it functionally, as soon as you can even describe a function, that that you don't need consciousness, that you could, uh, in theory, implement that function using an unconscious mechanism. Uh, that's just my little, you know, soapboxy statement about consciousness. So let me just, let me not, not give you a rebuttal, but just as a, a, a comment. In other words... Let us assume that the vast majority of all behavior is unconscious. And what you're really questioning is asking, is there any value in consciousness at all? Yeah. Now, if you take my Google search box analogy, which I don't know that it's correct, it's just it feels like it, 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 it has an element of truth, but I have no idea if it's true. The question would be, what, how do you start the ball rolling what is the catalyst for what the, the, uh, all the unconscious does? In other words, if it would, for example, start to write a novel on its own, then I would agree with you. But it seems to me that there is a modest 
directional capability of consciousness. It doesn't actually do the thinking and the computing, but it it sort of focuses on what it thinks is important. And, and, and I, I think in the book I use the analogy between a symphony conductor and the orchestra. I mean, the orchestra can clearly play, plays all the music. Right. Uh, the real question is, do you need a conductor? Now, granted, it can play the music, but you know, the, the conductor usually picks out what music to play and maybe subtly influences some of the tonalities and rhythms and so on. On the other hand, I mean, you can see a conductorless orchestra. Yep, it's been now, done. Now, the question is really whether or not they conductor, you need a conductor. I don't know how you'd answer that question. Well, I mean, uh, it's been done. I mean, if, yeah, of course. if, they are, the, if the orchestra works together enough, they can go without a conductor. But a conductor is very useful in synchronizing the orchestra, in managing uh, stresses and emphasis and things like that. So, um, let's, so let's just say that that, <laughs> in the, that was my question, is really let's say you want to – your, your unconscious brain, even though it's what's going to do, do the task once it's given it, the question is whether it would do a task by itself. And that's really the question. Is this consciousness get the ball rolling? For example, if you want to solve some famous math theorem, if the unconscious comes up with, yeah, I think I want to solve this math theorem on, on, on my own, and I want to do that, um, then you would be right. But on the other hand, if it is the, the accumulation of all of, your in, all of the unconscious stuff that at a higher level says, ah, I think that's what I like to do. I want to be a novelist then you would need consciousness in order to direct you. Not to, not to accomplish the function so much, but to direct you uh, into uh, initiating the action. And, and my counter-argument would be you can incorporate all of that direction into an unconscious process and even, you know, a computer mechanism. And one example I would cite, uh, someone I interviewed a couple of years ago, uh, very well known in, in some circles, a composer named David Cope, who 30, more than 30 years ago, I think, first started experimenting with algorithms uh, to compose music in the style of various famous composers um, and, and succeeded quite handily. Um, algorithms that composed really plausible pieces that fooled experts um, and then started creating very original works that weren't in the style of any living composer and, and good stuff. So he just managed to assign all kinds of compositional principles to an algorithm including principles like having structure and arc and opening and close, you know, and all of that. And I don't doubt that someone could do that with a novel that would be probably as good as some, oh, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but at least as good as some metafiction or postmodern novels deliberately have fragmentation and lack of narrative structure. <laughs> right. Well, that's what so-called hypertext novels are about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but we you know what I'm noticing is um, in our conversation in any conversation I have which talks about unconscious or subliminal versus conscious or aware is you load all these these values um, into one side or the other I mean they're very value laden concepts so the subconscious gets to sound mechanical automatic not very human it's a machine the conscious on the other hand is always described with words about the self in the first person, right. experience, morality, judgment, imagination, feelings, all of that's assigned to the consciousness. It's fascinating to me that we have these two spheres, and in so many cases we kind of uncritically 
assign all these values to them. And I think this gets, um, you know, I was hoping to get back to, listeners might be wondering, when are we going to get back to your critique of neuroscience? I think maybe this is our doorway back. And that is that one of your critiques is our sense of what a mind is, how it works, what we experience, um, is in some ways very much beholden to our brains or our unconscious telling us very selectively what's going on and sometimes misleadingly. And that neuroscience itself is beholden to those same very unreliable bits of evidence because neuroscientists, though they're very sophisticated when it comes to examining brains, often are taking rather uncritically these pre-existing concepts of what a mind is, uh, what feelings are, what, how emotions can be divided. You know, when they're examining feelings of hate or fear or love or envy in these fMRI studies, they're kind of taking, I've, I've said this before in our earlier interview, hand-me-down concepts. Correct. So that's part of your critique right there is that when neuroscientists venture into the study of the mind, they're going with a ton of baggage that has been handed to them by this unreliable mechanism, right? Right. So actually, let me go back to what you were saying before and try and move it forward to what you're talk- asking me now. Because Sure, sure. Um, you do that. Uh, you mentioned about consciousness. Now, let me just say this. What separates us from a machine is our belief that we're not machines. I mean, we have a very strong belief in humanity. We believe that we have a higher purpose to some degree. We believe in moral values, etc. Now, let's say that all of this is illusory, that it's generated by unconscious biologic mechanisms. It still is the glue that, to the extent that it works, which doesn't appear to be very much, that might prevent humanity from self-destructing. Knows it might be pure illusion that, if properly nurtured, will allow us to get along better. You follow me? I, I do. I do. And so it might. It, you could even make a, a meta argument that consciousness serves a social purpose, even though it's not. It's not necessary for the things that we normally attribute to it, like uh, decision making. So, so let me so let me go back with that because what you what you just mentioned is that what is it that creates our mind that does the thinking and what I've been struck by when I mentioned originally I, I focused for what my first book maybe took ten years was on certainty as an involuntary mental sensation but now I realize for example with let's say you have a stroke and suddenly you recognize that it's your arm in terms of you know it's your arm because you can see it, but you say it's not your arm anymore. It no longer feels like your arm. Well, that's a sense of ownership. Right. Okay, so we now know that we have a sense of self that you can, you can uh, alter through the rubber hand experiment or you can stimulate the brain and create out-of-body experiences. So you have a sense of self that is illusory in the sense that you're talking about it, that you can generate through brain stimulation or chem- chemicals, etc., now, you combine these together, and what you have is a sense of a unique individual trying to explain itself. That's, that's where neuroscience is now. There, in other words, and, so that, and the very mind that you're using to try and explain it uh, believes it has unique thoughts, even though the thoughts may be generated as a group phenomenon, such as consensus bias and so on. But you, because you feel they're yours, 
and you have a sense of pride, which is yet another sort of uh, mental sensation, and you have a sense of uniqueness, which is a mental sensation, and you have a sense of agency, namely your ideas uh, cause other ideas. It is this combination of involuntary activity for unconscious that collectively is investigating what this involuntary activity is. <laughs> I mean, if you want to talk about a, a recursive or infinite uh, loop, I can't imagine a more stunning one. Yeah, there you go. And I, I should also note, um, lest anybody listening to this think uh, we're philosophically naive in the way we're even talking about this, I just want to note that I am well aware that throughout this conversation, when we talk about uh, for instance, being fooled uh, that autonomy or consciousness is an illusion, we're still using this word we or I throughout, and we couldn't talk about these things without using those words. So the assumption of an autonomous, um, self-directed, conscious being is is embedded in our dialogue. I mean, it's it's part of our discourse. And our discourse, I'm going to say in a primary phenomenological way, is real. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's why I say I'm very reluctant to use the word illusion in a pejorative sense. It, I just mean it doesn't correspond to any scientifically investigatable entity. Right. And by the way, I want to um, mention, you, 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 we've been referring to, off and on, to involuntary mental sensations that inform us uh, uh, of who we are and give us our sense of what we're doing uh, consciously. And they include... Uh, this body image map, uh, you mentioned the rubber hand right. <laughs> illusion. This is something that people can actually do, I think, at parties, and, you know, just for fun. Um, Bob, jump in if I, if I get the description wrong. But if you um, put a person in a position where they, their actual hand is hidden, and you put a rubber hand where their hand should be, and then you reach under whatever is hiding the real hand, and you stroke the, the real hand and simultaneously stroke the rubber hand and they can see you stroking the rubber hand you can kind of get them believing you know or feeling that the rubber hand is their own hand it, it gets incorporated into their body map in a way that's correct um and you can do really wonderful experiments the the body swap illusion right and actually then with the body swap illusion you can actually create by using a video camera so you're seeing <clears throat> your environment from a different position than your eyes normally do, you can actually project your sense of self onto a mannequin, and then when you approach <laughs> that mannequin with a knife, your heart rate will speed up, and you'll get all sweaty and feel anxious, even though you know intellectually that that's a mannequin, and it's not you, but you can't help but feel that you're actually inside the mannequin. And it's these kinds of wonderful sort of cognitive science experiments that have led us to understand that the self is actually a representational map that resides in your unconscious brain mechanisms, and that becomes the, quote, you, upon which you hang your personal narratives. And by the way, if you want to be really mean and do the rubber hand thing, like, like I say, at a party or something, uh, after getting the people to experience the rubber hand as their own, I've heard that you can like take a hammer and smash the rubber hand and people will feel a horrible, even a, a, an actual sense of pain. That's right. Well, you know, it's interesting that uh, Ramachandran has actually done a study where he can, by using virtual avatars, uh, can get people to adjust more uh, easily to prosthetic devices. They actually incorporate right, the virtual avatar of a prosthetic hand into their brain so that when they are given the prosthesis, it actually feels like it's theirs. Yeah, this is V.S. Ramachandran, the, the neuroscientist at uh, UC San Diego. Correct. He's famous for his work with uh, amputees and uh, 
He's helped cure phantom limb pain through, again, altering the body map in the brain, uh, just using simple techniques like mirrors. That's probably what he's most famous for. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, reading your book and reading about the body swap illusion and things like that reminds me of the fact that something really fundamental to um, human experience is that we do project ourselves. I mean, yes, you know, in some sense we feel like our physical body ends uh, at the limit of our extremities and our, our skin, but in another way we are projecting ourselves out into other things with tools which feel like an extension of our body. In fact, we, we couldn't really do a good job of using them if we didn't incorporate them into our larger sense of self. When we drive, our car becomes kind of an extension of us. When I was a kid flying a kite, I felt like I was in the sky. That's, that's why I loved flying kites. I mean, why else would I do such a thing? Um, if you have a pet, you know, if you have loved ones, we are these extended selves in many ways. Absolutely. Uh, I, and I, I think I have a part of a chapter in the book about how far this might extend. And to me, the idea that we are unique individuals and with all the attendant problems of pride and arrogance and so on, in part stem from the fact that we feel a sense of uniqueness from these sensations. But the rest of the uh, animal kingdom operates through both solitary and group activity. I mean, you watch what whales hunting, you know, doing as a collective unit, or you watch termites building mounds or ants directing traffic. Every other form of life from the lowest to the highest has a sort of group behavior which is really dictates their activity. And somehow if we understood that many of the ideas that we think of are our own and we cherish and we pride, I think of guys like Rush Limbaugh. I mean, you know, if what if he were told those weren't even his ideas? <clears throat> I mean, imagine how different it, it would be in terms of discourse in your life if you recognized you were just mouthing group, group speak. Well, we all are in a sense. I mean, but, but the, what we tend to think of group speak as other people's ideas being imposed upon us. Right. What if, in fact, it's not even that it's imposed upon us? It's what. We are at that moment. I mean, there are studies on synchronization when you do uh, music and so on that suggest that we know, we lose our personal sense of, of agency and become part of a larger collective, whether it's the Nuremberg trial or a football game. Absolutely. A Nuremberg trial, a Nuremberg rally, I mean, you know. And so, uh, to me, it, 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 it's worth taking a step back from the idea of uniqueness. But in order to do that, you have to understand that this whole process whether you want to call it, it's illusory in the sense that it doesn't refer to anything real, and I'm not really real in the sense, but I'm still standing here, you know, worrying about mortality even while I'm not real. I mean, I'm, I mean, that's that is the conflict of being a human being. Mm. Well, we could we could spend a lot of time talking about the illusory nature of the self, and we could even wander into the world of Buddhism or Eastern you right. know, philosophy if we wanted to. But uh, Going back to your idea that, you know, in some ways you can talk about collective intelligence, collective behavior, um, in your book you cite one of the most wondrous examples from the, uh, certainly not the animal kingdom and not the plant kingdom, I think it's from the fungi <laughs> or some other lower order, so-called right. lower order, the slime mold, um, a particular type of slime mold. Right. Um, um, well, basically, <clears throat> slime mold is, or I guess at the junction between animal and vegetable, I mean, uh, but it's, they're single-celled organisms that when times are bad, as far as times are bad for them, means not enough food to eat, they combine into a 
a multinucleated giant cell, 100,000 of them at once, and then they can go out there and search for food as a collective. I mean, one of the most fascinating studies is they, they apparently these guys like oat bran, um, <laughs> whatever reason, and so you, Fiber. you they put little flakes of oat bran on a, a topographic map of England, and then they put the slime mold on London, and within a short period of time, these little slime mold had completely recreated the, the British uh, highway system. And, and so they did it again in Japan. They put the, the oat brand on all the various cities of Japan, and, and then they put the slime mold in, 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 on Tokyo, and they recreated the, the railroad system. Exactly. And the guy who did the study said that this took the same degree of mathematical ability as a person trying to ride a bicycle, you know, the, the balancing to do a bicycle. So the thing about it is that these slime mold don't have a brain. They have no neurons. They have no neural structure whatsoever. So what you really are left with is they obviously, you can't, I don't know if you call it purpose or intention or what you call it, but obviously they are doing something that is purposeful, namely surviving uh, through an activity that doesn't require the brain, but it's done as a group. And then, you know, and I talk about the locus and so on. I, I mean, to me, it's self-evident that this is a reasonable possibility that we operate both in a larger sphere than we give ourselves credit for, but we just simply don't want to acknowledge it. Well, yeah, and, and just to, to explain a little more about the slime mold, um, this is a particular type of slime mold that can do this. I've forgotten its name, but where it can exist in the single-celled form or these cells can merge. Right into one giant slug-like organism with multiple nuclei that behaves in ways that seem directed and intelligent, like the, you know, the, the task of finding the most efficient uh, route to travel among uh, <laughs> English cities uh, is in that experiment. So here you have uh, you know, incredibly simple components coming together and collectively manifesting something like complex behavior. But, of course, that's the claim made about our brain as well. I mean, a neuron isn't a brain, but you put enough of them together, billions of them with trillions of connections, and somehow you have a brain. So somehow um, complex processes emerge out of rather simple units working together. Right. So let's take the slime mold for a second. Yeah. As I recall, what happens is the slime mold secretes cyclic AMP, which is a... Um, for the purpose of this discussion, it's kind of a neurochemical, although it isn't. There's no, it, it, but anyhow, it it causes this behavior. And in the locust, they've I, I, they found that it, the locust changed from solitary to swarming by stroking their hind legs when they get to a critical density of locusts, and that causes the release of serotonin. Now, so from your side of the equation, what this is, is this occurs inside the individual animal brain. No question. So whether cyclic AMP is released that changes the behavior in the slime mold or the serotonin to check the individual locus, that is occurring at the level of the individual brain, but however, it's occurring as the result of a group phenomena. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you stick one person inside an MRI scanner and try and study empathy, you, you will not find anything that's related to other people. That's one of the ironies is that you do an fMRI to study altruism or empathy, and you're negating the whole aspect of human behavior that is the interaction between people. You can't stick them all in one MRI scanner together. Right. On the other hand, and again, in a very unexamined way, collective experience is totally embedded in the concepts that you would use to describe that person's mental state, emotions, etc. 
I mean, I'm going to, you know, sound like a philosophy guy rather than a scientist now. But, you know, again, when you start talking about these things, these concepts are built from cultural tradition, you know, in many ways. And, and, and I don't think you can escape it. That's so, right. so I think collectivity enters in a strange way, um, even when you're studying an individual. It, it enters in the very assumptions and concepts that uh, are, are structuring your inquiry. Yeah, what I really meant was that, that neuroscience of the individual, like, for example, yeah. will not reveal that behavior that occurs at a group level. Right, right, right. Any more than studying one termite will tell you how termites build uh, termite mounds. You need to study the termites as a collective. But neuroscience, I mean, if you think it's hard enough to study neuroscience of a single individual, to, to try and understand sociological phenomena or group behavior with the individual is it just it's, it's, it's the wrong level of study. Yeah, in fact, it, it, I would add to the list of um, received concepts that haven't been fully um, examined I, the individual itself. I mean, we have, uh, and I I don't want to blame Western culture too much for everything, uh, but it is kind of a Western way of thinking that that we are these isolated, self-sufficient um, beings. Well, you know, what's interesting is that, that I don't know enough about Eastern religion to make an intelligent comment on this, but yeah. there is the study I mentioned in the book about Western versus Eastern sense of self. Yeah, that was really interesting. And so that if you take people that are raised in Hong Kong, but that, let's say, have exposure to both Western and Eastern uh, uh ideas at different times, you can actually change the way their fMRI will look when they talk about a sense of self, so that people with Eastern background who've been exposed to Eastern ideas preceding the fMRI, when you uh, ask them questions about a sense of self, the sense of self tends to include prominent family members, including their mother, whereas in Western cultures, it's solely isolated to the eye. So what you have in the Western culture, which, for better or worse, is a greater sense of uniqueness. Right. And I think that that drives Western neuroscience. And I want to underline when you talk about the studies of Eastern and Western um, senses of self that you can look at fMRIs. Now, this may suffer from some of the deficiencies of a lot of right. fairly vague fMRI studies, but they look at a part of the brain that seems to get active when various words and concepts relating to a sense of self are suggested, right? Correct. And in the Eastern subjects, that is the Asian subjects, um, they will see that area get active when words uh, mentioning family members are mentioned, whereas in the American subjects, it seems to respond mostly to very individualistic words, me, myself, and I. Um, so that suggests, although it's hardly conclusive, that there is a much more expansive sense of self among these Eastern folks and that it is actually visible in brain activity. Right. Um, um, now, some people might think your argument then, we, we've spent a long time talking about just how hard it is to even talk about consciousness, to talk about the self, to talk about mind, um, just how hard it is to know what we know <laughs> about the mind. But... Uh, I want to get back to a critique of neuroscience itself, where, where neuroscience has sort of gone beyond its brief. And some people might think this was just sort of an intellectual uh, skirmish here, but you write, if this were merely of academic concern, I wouldn't bother with this book. What alarms me is that a lack of clear understanding of what we can and cannot say about the mind, 
and the commonly held belief in the unlimited powers of science are a recipe for potential catastrophe. Now, some people might think you're getting kind of chicken little-ish about this, but you do cite some examples where neuroscience has been used to, to make decisions or might be used to make decisions that are kind of scary. Um, there was a young woman in Mumbai who was actually convicted of murdering her ex-fiance based on, get this, EEG data. That's an electroencephalogram, which measures mass electrical activity of the brain, because supposedly that EEG showed that she knew some details of the murder that she couldn't have known if she didn't commit it? Correct. <laughs> she actually is out on appeal now, but uh, yes, and... <laughs> I mean, it, it, there have been, you know, there are there are companies here in America that are actually trying to sell um, this way of studying the brain as um, being able to do mind reading. Right, right. Oh, of course, that's and, and, one of the and, holy I mean, grails. It's, it's it, but you know, I think if, if to me one of the most alarming studies was just mostly because from a personal perspective was the one about the the young woman in the coma. Yeah, yeah. Tell that story. Just but basically, what's bothersome is. When you overstep what you can actually say, in other words, from our conversation today, one of the real questions is, what do you need consciousness for? And the second related question is, consciousness, is it, is it unitary or is it a whole bunch of different sort of mental states? Obviously, we have everything from nightmares to dreams to confusional states to delirium to crystal clear consciousness. They're all, they're all the categories of some kind of consciousness. Yeah. Now... The, the, the case in point was one where these really brilliant, in terms of technically, technologically savvy uh, neuroscientists, studied this woman who'd been in a so-called persistent vegetative state for six months. She was in an auto accident. She'd had some neurosurgical procedures and had never really awakened. I mean, she opened her eyes but didn't look around, and she didn't respond to her environment. And to, on a clinical level, she had a very poor prognosis and was in a vegetative state that for purpose of discussion we they call persistent. Now, they did a study on her where they asked her by putting headphones on her and then um, asking her one to imagine playing tennis. This woman has formerly been a good tennis player. Uh, and then imagine walking around the house. And when she did that, her fMRI scan lit up in very similar manner to ordinary healthy volunteers. Sufficiently nor similar that the uh, scientists concluded that despite being clinically unresponsive, that she was actually conscious and fully aware of her environment. Now, the, the argument from their standpoint was, since it's the same as what ordinary healthy volunteers do, this must mean that she has a similar state, mental state. But the problem that's not addressed in that is whether or not how much we can do unconsciously. And we know that, for example, we pick out our uh, name at a cocktail party when it's heard without hearing anything other stuff. We know that sleeping mothers' EEGs will change when they hear their baby's name or hear their baby crying. We, and there are, So there are lots of studies that show that much of this processing occurs unconsciously, in addition to which you have to think about this. We've had to lay down representational maps for playing tennis in order to imagine it. So we know those maps are already in place. And it's the same way you learn anything. First, you, you learn it by uh, laying down the circuitry for the, the act. For example, when you first move into a new house, you have to learn to lay out of the house. Eventually, it becomes second nature, so you can virtually walk around in the dark. So imagining walking around your house or playing tennis might be done without you being aware of any of it. So the real question is, 
what do you say under these kind of circumstances? The person is still unresponsive. There's no evidence that there's been any change in their clinical status. What do you tell the family? Well, to me, the correct answer is we got this new study that shows that this is what she does, can do on this thing, but we have no idea what it means. It may mean that there's some consciousness in there. On the other hand, it may mean that this is all involuntary activity. And without talking to her, you don't know. But the neuroscientist concluded that she was clearly conscious and aware. And I thought to myself, how will this sit with the literally hundreds of thousands of people who have re- relatives or, or uh, close ones in a similar situation when they look at them and they've been told there's no hope, or maybe ones that they've already said, well, you know, I think given this, we should withdraw supportive care and so on. When they think, when, when a scientist is told they're unequivocally conscious in this situation, and to me it's, a, it's morally... Um, there's, there's a, probably a really strong word for it, but, I'll leave, but you uh, fill in the blank. <laughs> uh, oh, repugnant would be a, would be a, a nice word. Uh, to, to make those kinds of statements when, when the lives of so many people uh, are, uh, you know, other people are at stake, it's much better to say we don't know the limits of unconscious cognition. We don't know what requires conscious. We don't know what her mental state is unless she can tell us. But unfortunately, this particular study has morphed into being a whole field whereby fMRIs and to some extent EEGs are being used to try and determine people's level of consciousness in the absence of them being able to tell you if this is correct. This, I mean, this is like uh, if a tree falls in the forest and no one you know, <laughs> doesn't hear it, what's the right answer? Did it make a sound? I mean, here, you, unless you can talk to the person, you don't know. And these, and these people who are unresponsive, you're, you're making an uh, arbitrary assumption that's going to billions of dollars in medical costs and untold agony to families when you really don't know the right answer. So to me, this is where you have to sort of draw the line at neuroscience and say, this is really interesting. It's a great technique for investigation, but it's not one upon which you want to change the the landscape for treatment of patients in coma. Well, one of the, I think, real dreamed-of goals of these kinds of studies is to find some absolutely unambiguous fingerprint in, let's say, fMRI activity of consciousness. So here's an area of the brain that lights up, or several areas, or some kind of pattern of activity that absolutely is 100% always associated with consciousness. And therefore, simply by looking at this fMRI, we can tell you whether the person's conscious or not. Is that something that's possible by doing a ton of studies? Okay, we'll anesthetize some people, put them under total anesthesia, look at what areas of the brain are, are always inactive during that time. We'll have awake patients and see areas that are always active. And, you know, if we do that enough, sooner or later, we'll be able to diagnose consciousness. You know, I'm not sure, mind you, I don't know the answer to this. I'm not even sure that is a proper logical question. For example, they have, a lot of people believe they have found the unconscious neural correlative pain. So they have a, in, in your brain you have a so-called pain matrix, which are the areas that light up uh, when someone's given a painful stimulus, okay? Yeah. Uh, now, they have done studies on unconscious animals, anesthetized animals, and have made such statements as these patients would experience pain, these, these animals would be experiencing pain if they were conscious. Well, then the question is, is there such a thing as unconscious pain? I mean, right, pain, right. pain is a mental state <laughs> right. that requires you 
uh, experiencing it. Exactly. I mean, in fact, we, we put people under <laughs> during surgery because the assumption is that you can't experience pain. You, first of all, are not around to experience it when you're supposedly totally unconscious, and therefore the pain goes nowhere. It doesn't hurt anybody. Well, right? so, the, so that's why I was getting at. So if you take these cattle where they did the study, it was actually studied on whether or not slaughter was humane. Uh, if, you, if you argue that there's a neural correlate for pain that's present in, in animals that can't possibly experience, be experiencing it, then you're really <laughs> talking about something other than pain. Yeah. Well, this, this part of our discussion uh, about this patient, for instance, who was in the persistent vegetative state and the attempt to find out whether she was conscious or not just reminds me of how much stock we put in consciousness. We say that consciousness is a self. A conscious being has rights. A conscious being has intentions. A conscious being has feelings like pain. Uh, a conscious being deserves to live uh, in a way that a completely unconscious thing, I'm deliberately not saying being because it seems like consciousness is associated with being. Right. Uh, if if the woman was proven to people's satisfaction to have no chance of regaining consciousness, of never being conscious, they might have said pull the plug. So we think of consciousness as really being the seat of sort of human existence and human rights, uh, of human sympathy or of deserving sympathy. An unconscious thing even if that unconscious thing was very sophisticated, uh, the patterns of uh, you know brain activity that correspond to memories of childhood, playing tennis, of eating uh, you know a madeleine, could all be going on. But as long as that person wasn't conscious, they would be nothing more than a than a robot or a machine, right? Right. So that and actually, you you inadvertently stumbled on what I think is going to be my next project. Is really the one of the questions arises is why do why do we have these thoughts um, that somehow the the more developed your consciousness is the more rights you have right so obviously a fly we don't think of flies as being conscious at all but we probably think of maybe we think of a salamander and we certainly think of a dog as having consciousness and absolutely as you climb that ladder you are deserving of more consideration. And yet, you know, it's hard to look at a ladybug and not feel some sense of empathy or rapport or something. I mean, just you look at it, and there's something that goes, we're all in this together. Do you feel uh, the same way about uh, a black widow spider? You know, we, have a, <laughs> we, we used to have a size rule in our house, you know. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, unless it's really big, it goes out the door. But we don't have a size rule anymore. We just try and take everything out if we can. Uh, I haven't come across a black widow spider since I was a kid. They may be an exception. When you when you get to that book, I mean, uh, you are climbing big, big mountains. Are you intimidated? I mean, because you are scaling the same peaks that have been attempted by the greatest philosophers uh, and some of the greatest scientists. Nah, because I don't believe I have any answer. <laughs> you know, you're only intimidated if you think that someone's expecting something from you. Right? I expect a lot of you, Bob, because we're going to be doing the interview as soon as you come out with that book. You know what I'm saying, though? Really, the truth of the matter is that I, I never believed that, you know, I just do this for fun. By fun, I mean, it, it just preoccupies my mind, and I love to work on it. You know, I used to write novels, and it was fun to do that, but I realized novels were really exploring who it is to be somebody. And now I realize that I've just moved from fiction to nonfiction, but they're still stories. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Absolutely puts me in mind of a number of interviews I've done about storytelling um, as a, you know, deep structuring 
process that is inescapable, you know, in all kinds of human thought. Um, you know, I talk to both scientists and philosophers, and what surprises me sometimes is the degree to which at least some scientists are hostile to philosophers. Um, there have been some animated fights, spats going on in the last few years between some physicists and some philosophers. Right. Did you did you read any of that in like the oh, yeah, times? Oh yeah, Lawrence Krauss and La- Lawrence Krauss calling says philosophy's dead. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I've heard that from a number of physicists that philosophy has absolutely nothing to say to um, to physics and that it's it's really stupid and pointless and and completely defunct because physics has pretty much provided a much better way of solving all those problems. And yet, I can't help but think that you know if you don't have a little bit of philosophical um, caution, that you're apt to make big mistakes in science. Well, let me, just two things. One is, if you uh, read the interview from the neuroscientist who did the study with the woman who is uh, in a persistent vegetative state, and believe me, the guy is very, very, very savvy and good uh, at neuroscience, okay? Uh, when he's asked, well, is it possible that this woman is not conscious? And his res- sort of smug response is, well, it's possible we're all just zombies, <laughs> and what I realized was that he just didn't want to go down that road and say of possibility. And in other words, what philosophy is, is is an attempt to refine. I mean, I, I hear a lot of philosophy, and I think it's just semantic mumbo-jumbo. On the other hand, there are, there are aspects that are really valuable, which is the idea of trying to refine your ideas in a way, understand the limits of your ideas, to, to, to invoke a healthy skepticism, and also to ask yourself, what what are we establishing when we when we arrive at this data? I mean, where did this idea come from, and how logical is it, and what's the nature of law? I mean, I don't know how you can do without it. Well, yeah, and one of its specialties is identifying contradictions in a statement. And I would say it's possible I'm a zombie is at bottom a contradictory statement. I cannot I cannot simultaneously assert that I'm making a meaningful statement and that I am a zombie at the same time. You know, there was just a <laughs> study this morning that came out on a new update on the Benjamin Libet studies on on uh, free will and and where they once again in, in the electrodes placed inside conscious patients getting surgery for epilepsy, they were able to find that uh, the decision to make a decision. You get again five or seven. I forgot the exact number, but five or between five and ten seconds occurred before the person was consciously aware of it. Right, exactly. Based yeah. upon that, you know, they're they're arguing that we that we don't have decision making. No, it's because what you're doing, you do that. You're saying the we or the I that is is doing it is the conscious I. Right. By amputating the unconscious, that you say we don't have the ability to make willful decisions. It's the whole organism that makes the decision. Of which only a little bit at most is conscious. Uh, to and, and and you would expect that any decision you made had to have a, a its precursor in the brain that would have to start things going. In other words, it wouldn't. It, it isn't going to start de novo. It would be unimaginable that you wouldn't have pre-existing uh, activity in the brain that sort of the, the decision-making apparatus is warming up or doing whatever it does, and then when it's made its decision, it tells you about it because that's how it works. But, I mean, it's nothing spec- particularly spectacular to think about that. But, but but note note Bob and I'm sorry to interrupt but but do note that you're referring to this large apparatus as a machine. It, it's no different in relation to the I that you're talking about than my computer is to me right now. Right. Um, and so in a strange way consciousness is 
again, the seat of all the nobility, of all the humanity. Um, and the unconscious is nothing more than a bunch of circuitry. Right? Uh, I, I would like to say I'd like to think about that, but for the purpose of discussion, I'll agree with you. <laughs> I think that's one of the biggest mysteries. Um, well, you know, you, you go back to this question you asked me earlier, um, is the nature of consciousness, why would we even have it? And listen, for the moment, let's, let's accept your premise that it might be a t- complete illusion. And then, then you say, well, is there a value in an illusion? Uh, and if, in fact, humanity, in, in its most sterling manner, you know, the, the altruism, heroism, uh, great literature and stuff, is something that we're all proud of and makes us glad to be alive, then this illusion has real value. At the same time, there's no question that we are machines in terms of any complex decision-making, except for the question about the input that starts the ball rolling. And which remains the big question. Well, I am, as, we're, as we draw to a close here, I'm going to state my position, uh, which I hinted at earlier, and that is that though you can talk about the self or consciousness as an illusion, you can't do so coherently because who's being diluted? That's who, right. Who? There's always a who in there. We can't escape the who. The who is the most real aspect of our experience, it's the most real aspect, in a sense, of our conversation. It's the one thing we really, really believe in, and, and therefore talking about it as actually a machine or a zombie or just a pile of neural circuitry is to really contradict yourself in some very deep way. It is, and, I, and, and that's why I mentioned that, like, for example, if you're, if you're a member of a large group, such as in a stadium, and they're all acting in unison, the, the, the you is subsumed in a larger organism. I don't know what you want to call it an organism or, or, or entity. All the way up, we are, we are trying to give ourselves a, a semantic foothold somewhere. Yes. Uh, none of it makes any absolute sense in terms of how we experience it. Right. But... And that's why when they talk about neural correlates of consciousness and so on, you go, for example, if you're driving on autopilot, okay, which I do. And, you know, you drive, you drive down the street and your, your mind is 100%, let's say, on this interview. You're still conscious. Now, let's say your brain, let's say they have an fMRI scan and it's a neural core of the consciousness and it lights up 100%. It doesn't tell you you're conscious of driving. No. It is not going to be able to tell. So even the neural core of the consciousness isn't going to be able to tell you uh, conscious of what. The, the content of consciousness will always be, a, be beyond our reach. Mm. Mm. Well, we should leave it there. It may be beyond our reach, but it's sure fun to talk about. And I really, of course, it's fun because <laughs> there's nothing more fun than illusions. I mean, we. I mean, if you think about your day, people play virtual games. They watch movies. Movies are illusions. There's nothing more fun than getting fully immersed in the illusion of a movie. I mean, we love illusions, and there's nothing surprising about that. You know, you're making me think that there's a topic for another conversation, um, another branch of this conversation that we could pick up again some other time. Um, And that is that one thing about human existence that seems to be very peculiar is the way in which we are, in some deep and maybe inescapable sense, always in multiple states at once. So an illusion, and the reason we enjoy it, is because we're being tricked and we aren't being tricked at the same time. And it's that duality that makes fiction, that makes... Entertainment, you know, magic. 
magic. Yeah, it's it's not being completely fooled by it because to be completely fooled by it would be no different than living it. It's the joy of being simultaneously fooled and not fooled by it. Yes, and actually, I, what it amounts to is, is it, 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 so that is really metacognition. <laughs> it's really looking at yourself, and that's really the, probably one of the values of introspection, is not so much to understand exactly what makes you tick, but is actually to get a, to get a grip on what exactly it is that you're, how, how you're behaving in, in some, some sort of metacognitive way. In other words, if I recognize this conversation we've had today, although we've inputted some ideas, most of these are the product of, things you've thought out for many, many years. And people always, like when I used to write novels, they say, how do you write a novel? And I, and I said, well, you, you, you start typing. But it's not really clear how you do that. It's not clear how these ideas evolve. And anything you say to other people is simply a very rough approximation that, you know, you take a huge grain of salt. Because most of what we say when we talk to each other is already, you know, it's a process of a gigantic, un, unavailable unconscious. And so, I, I, and I think to go back to our original point is, you asked me about uh, well, how I got started. I think possibly because I've been always born with a relatively low, quote, uh, low sense of being right about anything. Uh, um, I've just sort of enjoyed the questions. I really don't pay a lot of attention to the answers. And the conversation we have today has been enormous fun. And maybe some of what I said is right. Maybe it isn't. But it's it's kind of interesting food for thought. And I think that part of this. By the, by very nature, I'm offended by those folks who are absolutely certain that, that they've got the right answer, the last word. I mean, I've when you see see people saying philosophy is dead, or one of the famous philosopher uh, when asked why we don't yet know what consciousness is, he just says we have to. You'll have to try harder. <laughs> I mean, that's a direct quote. And, and you go, well, uh, all well and good, but it, that that's the kind of statement that leaves me cold. Uh, and, in fact, I did an interview just last weekend. I was on Salon, which basically I said what we're in need of is an Einstein for the mind. Well, that's um, that may be true, but it may well be that even Einstein or his equivalent could never cross the chasm that we've talked about because it is two very different categories. Right. So what, what I think Einstein of a mind would do is it would get us to the limits of what we would know. And then we'd still be left without a theory of everything. <laughs> we have had some Einstein-level intelligences apply themselves in the in the field of philosophy. I mean, David Hume and, and Immanuel Kant were both brilliant thinkers right. on the mind, and there have been many others. Different people prefer different philosophers, but um, uh, and some regard them just as nothing but mumbo-jumbo. But I don't think you could say that about the best philosophers of mind. Well, I think that actually... I have in my book a little note, note of thanks. I actually was going to dedicate it to David Hume, but I didn't think he'd be able to read it. <laughs> uh, I actually said thank you, David, in there, because, you know, here, this is 1737. We're approaching, what, 300 years, and what he, he just said, the mind is just a composite of sensation. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I mean, think about that. That's before they even had science to speak of. I mean, they had some science, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, and here we are. I mean, that's an observation 300 years later. It still lasted. And that's a much better idea about what the mind is than saying that there's a neural correlate of consciousness because you've got a 40 hertz uh, waveform in the thalamus. Well, Bob, I'm going to let you and your thalamus take the rest of the day off. Well, my thalamus says goodbye, and so do I. <laughs> Thanks again. <laughs> my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Robert Burton's latest book is A Skeptic's Guide to the Mind, What Neuroscience Can and Cannot Tell Us About Ourselves. 
This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. Do join us then. And you can always visit us online at 7thAvenueProject.com.